and welcome to Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. And I'm Jamie Heath. And uh, what do we do every week here on this show, Liz Plank? Hmm, we talk to all kinds of different people, artists, thought leaders, actors, <laughs> authors, right? Uh, friends and family members in some cases <laughs> yep. about what it means to be a man mm -hmm. and their journey towards gender equality. And why are we doing that? Jamie Heath. <laughs> because the world is imbalanced <laughs> and because we need this place to be a lot better yeah. than what it is. Man, the world is wonderful in so many ways. You know, I don't want to be one of these naysayers that we're not mm -hmm. uh, doing great things, but we know that it needs to look different mm -hmm. and there is inequality all throughout the world mm. and it will not uh, heal until we do the internal work, until men, um, until we learn how to let go of our ego until we champion women, get out of their way. Um, and that's why we're doing this, so mm. that we can, uh, you know, it's therapeutic for us. Yeah. And hopefully for some others, um, they can learn a thing or two. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, uh, we learn in real time here. Mm -hmm. So one of the great things about this show is we're not experts. We are human beings, we're people, and we are learning from each other and from our guests every single episode. And, uh, and we have an incredible guest today a beautiful young man, mm. Karen Brar. Uh, him and I first met, I'd say probably four years ago. We became friends and started talking and um, and Karen lost tragically his best friend. They were like twins, two peas mm -hmm. in a pod. They were brothers. He passed away of a uh, seizure. And he has spent the last few years dedicating his life to serve Cameron and, and, and his legacy and his memory. And um, I just thought it'd be an important conversation yes, to talk sir. about grief and mental health and and a lot of things we don't talk about yep. as it relates to masculinity. Mm -hmm. So uh, mm. so please stick around. We will be right back with a beautiful conversation. This is Man Enough. Hello and welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Jamie Heath. And... Uh, we got a really, really cool guest today. Mm -hmm. My man, Karen Brar. What's up, brother? Thank you guys so much for having me on. I feel so honored. I'm so happy that you came. We've been chatting for a while. We met when you were 18, so at four years ago. Yeah, it's it's been a minute. I'm sorry, what? Four years ago you were 18? I know. That was, let's see, 20 years ago for me. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm old. You were not 18 20 years ago. Sure. What's the difference? Mm -mm. You were 18 longer well, than that. No, no. It's, let's just go with 20. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you're, you're 22. <laughs> yes, that's, I'm 22. That's forever ago for me. Mm. <laughs> and I'm so happy for all your success. And I just so appreciate you being here. Um, I know you've had a pretty rough last few years. And, um, and I, uh, I wanted to invite you on to talk about, of course your your life and a little bit of your work but more who you are in the world and also what you've been through because i think that we i think there's a lot of men out there who could learn especially young men learn and appreciate um how to process loss and grief because of what you've been doing and anyways but we'll get into that in a second uh i think liz plank has a bio to read. I have so many uh, accomplishments uh, to, to read. You are an actor, you're a philanthropist, you've starred in a film and television projects for major networks like 20th Century Fox, Netflix, Disney. Your portrayal as Ravi in the Disney Channel series Jesse and Bunked. You were the network's first 
ever series regular Indian character, which is wow. amazing for you, embarrassing for this country. Um, and <laughs> yes. First of many, uh, you've pushed the boundaries of the channel by sharing your culture, your story with a vast audience of kids and families, and proving to the entertainment industry that it is much more than a cliche. So you sit on the advisory board of Cameron Boyce Foundation, an organization dedicated to the life and legacy of your best friend, Cameron Boyce, by reducing gun violence and curing epilepsy. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah. Oh there's, my God. My. There's one thing we left out too. Oh, director. Oh yes. Ooh. How dare you forget oh that I'm a director? God. That's exciting. We left out, and, and and that's how we met. So oh. we were both directing episodes of our TV shows. And they make you go through to this program. This where is like boot like, camp, I, I would say. It's like say. a boot camp for actors who are directors, yeah. even if we've done it before. And we were just hanging out the whole time and getting to know each other. And I was like, this this guy is so pure. And then he got to know me and then he was like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Not even a little bit, man. Yeah. Can I ask you a, a question? You, uh, you, The first Indian regular yes. ever on a series? Yeah, for Disney Channel. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. what would that? what did that feel like? Uh, it was it was definitely a very confusing process for me because at the time uh, my my best friend Cameron Boyce and I uh, we had met in the audition process and we were auditioning for the same role and my character Ravi um, did not exist at the time so they weirdly brought us in to screen test together and they were just like just improvise some stuff to these eleven year olds <laughs> um, and you know eleven year olds we know Harold method like no other. Um, <laughs> 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 and uh we we were just like goofing around and they were like you know the head haunches at disney channel were like hire both of them um. and the the writers were like okay so i guess we got to create some characters here mm. and uh they created ravi um who was the first indian series regular and we we learned that when we were on set like we were a few episodes in and my dad was talking to one of the disney executives and was like Hey, like, have you guys ever had this before? And he had to think for a second. And he was like, "No, we've we've never we've never done this before," um, which was like a, a little bit overwhelming at first because you're like, "Oh, this is a whole community that I'm representing," and uh, and exciting at the same time because you're like, "Oh, I people will probably identify with my mm. name and mm -hmm. my culture and a lot of things that I didn't have when I was a kid." Mm. Well, that is no. Small thing, you know, like for in, an eleven-year-old, nonetheless. <laughs> but I don't even mean only for you, but but yes, for you, but for your children one day when you have them, um, in your life, like that is, you know, we're forever trying to advance civilization. Yeah. Um, How did your dad? And feel? that happens through that. Yeah. Uh, my dad was and still is very very proud, and I'm very lucky to have Indian parents that are, you know, immigrants who have gone through everything that they've experienced. The intense amount of trauma they've experienced to come to this country mm. and um, did not hold me to the standard of, of being, um, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. They were very open to me exploring, you know, my creativity and what I wanted to do and try an alternative career path and also mm. the most unstable career path that you could possibly <laughs> think of. Um, and they're, they're really, um, I'm very lucky to have like proud and supportive uh, parents mm. and they've been such a a great like rock for me during this time in the pandemic when we're dealing with global unemployment and we're dealing with so many different struggles and every industry is impacted and you know my parents like 
kind of have been there through this process and be like, don't worry, you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And it's, you know, you're, you're going to jump on another set. Everything's going to be perfect. <laughs> Not your typical immigrant parent. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> conversation. No, no, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's had its learning curves at times. Yeah. Like there's, there's been times where we haven't met eye to eye or they're like, oh, they have to realize like they're raising American kids, not, mm. um, mm. not kids in India. And, you know, that's, that's, like I said, it's, it's been a learning curve, but mm. we get through it. <laughs> yeah. and, your, and your dad was in theater. Yes, he was. So my dad, um, I originally got into acting because I, at seven, I had this like quarter life crisis and I was... <laughs> at seven, what does that look like? <laughs> it's, I realized it happens every seven years for me. So at 14, I had a crisis. Uh, and at 21, I had a crisis. So 28 is going to be real bad. Oh um, <laughs> but uh, at seven, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? What is my purpose? Um, am I going to, like, what am I good at? And... Because I grew up in a kind of kind of a small town, I'd, all the guys just like played sports, and I was like, ah, oh, yes, me, Karin, a manly man, I should play sports, and I was, I am incredibly uncoordinated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> quickly learned it wasn't for me, and then my dad was like, you know, I, I used to um, take some acting classes back in India. Do you want to try it out? And I was like, sure, why not? What have I got to lose? I'm seven. Um, <laughs> The normal thought process of a seven-year-old. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, also, you know, balancing my checkbook at the same time, you know, <laughs> classic seven-year-old stuff. Uh, no, but I, I, I tried an acting class, and uh, it, it just snowballed from there. I, mm. I really liked it. I was like, I guess this is something I do on the weekends just for fun. And then I was like, oh, I guess I should get an agent because all my friends are, have agents. And my mm. parents were like, sure, why not? Like, we'll do that. And booked a commercial, then booked a job, and then so on and so forth. And Sweet. now I'm in L.A. following my dreams. Beautiful. You are listening to the Man Enough podcast. We will be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. All right. So we skipped over the first question, but we're going to ask you the normal first question we ask on this show <laughs> because uh, we like to go deep right off the bat. Yes. Which is when was the last time you didn't feel enough? Ooh, when I didn't feel enough. Um, right, right after my best friend died, I, I didn't think I was in 2019. Every, I mean, my my life just was falling apart and did fall apart because of that. But I didn't feel like I could be enough for everyone around me. And yeah. I didn't think I was grieving enough. I didn't think I was being a man enough. I wasn't, um, mm. I, I, I didn't feel like I was reaching any bar that I was supposed to. Um, and that kind of progressed up until 2020 until I finally took a break and was like, I need to focus on my mental health and I need to focus on figuring out who Karin is and what that means to like, piece him back together even if mm. the picture looks a little bit sloppy mm. Mm. i've never you know i've never heard that uh, grieving enough that's the first time i think i've thought about that yeah i think we have so many expectations around grief but it's one of those things that we don't discuss as a society enough mm. um 
because it's so taboo. It's such, it's so uncomfortable. It's so fragile. Um, and it, it's this thing that invades your life very suddenly. Mm. And no one's equipped to handle it. And so you're constantly going between I'm grieving too much to I'm not grieving enough. Um, what am I supposed to be feeling? This is what I am feeling. And you're constantly, you know, whatever spectrum there is of, of emotions, you're constantly just bouncing back and yeah. forth, back and forth, back and forth to every different corner. And you can never find stability for those first few weeks. It's, mm -hmm. it's very destabilizing. Mm -hmm. had, had you ever had any loss or anybody you love pass away um before i have friend died. but i was i this is it's kind of twofold because i had experienced loss within the indian community simply through you know um the loss of my grandparents which i think is um more of like a natural thing that yeah. that parents go through whereas the loss of a child or the loss of someone who's young feels like um funny enough Dove Cameron said this. She said she said this after Cameron died. She said um, it feels like the universe broke a rule, mm. and um, I feel like when someone loses a child, it feels like the universe breaks a rule. Yeah. Um, and when I had lost my grandparents, it felt like a, the natural progression of life. Like I knew what was going to happen. Uh, I knew it was time. But also, Indians and Easterners in general grieve very differently than Westerners, from what I realized. Mm. Um, and I was so, I had never experienced a Western funeral and I didn't know that process at all. So immediately I was like, what are my responsibilities? What do I need to do? What do I wear? Like, I don't, you know, like wh from what I've seen ab about funerals and, and loss and grief and Western culture has only been through television and entertainment. And is that really what it's like? And, and, you know, when it's actually happening. Um, so it was it was a whole new learning experience from learning experiencing grief so intensely at such a young age, um, but for the first time in Western culture. So there's a lot of things tied to it. Mm. Mm. And grief is so gendered. Like mm -hmm. we really don't talk a, don't don't talk a lot about that. For the book that I wrote, I interviewed um, this amazing uh, activist and author Thomas Page McBee, who is trans. And he talked about, you know, transitioning and becoming a man um, and how differently people treated him when he was a man. Mm. And the way that it really came through for him was when his mother passed away and people didn't ask him, how are you? Hmm. They asked him what he was going to do. Yeah. Right. Like it's Action like, do based. you have the uh, funeral set up? Do you know what you're going to wear? Do you know, uh, you know, about the will, like all of the sort of logistics of death um, and, and of grief were asked to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to him. But how he was doing wasn't, you know, at all or, or how, he, you know, the, the sort of being part just didn't even make it through any of the questions. And he said, no one touched me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How was your experience of grief and, and do you see the way that masculinity made it harder or changed it for you? I think one of the trickiest things about loss and grief is that it's one of those things in life that shifts your life on its axis so suddenly. If you were to 
book a job that's like great you're going to be working from china like okay you've, you've got three weeks of cushion room to like pack your bags and stuff like that and uh, maybe adjust to a different culture but um when it comes to loss or grief your, your life just shifts within seconds mm-hmm. um and with that comes shock and from shock you i i like to put that i like to say that grief puts you in your worst self mm. and mm from that you go into gender roles just typical gender roles so i immediately was like okay i will look to the men to figure out what to do and i will look to the women for nurturing and comfort mm. and i i realized i was doing that in the middle of my grieving process um and and the funny thing is no one knows what they're doing when they're grieving <laughs> <laughs> everyone's kind of just trying to figure it out but you're absolutely right because mm. you're so flung into your to your worst self you go into your you know these these binaries that you have constructed in your head around what a man does and what a woman does mm. um and what were you told a man does what not like what were you socialized to believe a man does during grief when he's grieving mm. he has to keep the ship afloat is what i was told um my my father is the eldest son in his family, which meant that he had to carry on a lot of the responsibilities of the family. Um, and that can go from anywhere from like business to to money affairs to like personal, just like, okay, where like where is grandma gonna live? Where where um how is everyone gonna adjust to this? everything was his responsibility. And so at the same time for me I immediately had that I don't know if it was it was toxic but I just I just felt that inherent responsibility that everything was my responsibility that I needed to do I need to step up to the plate and I needed mm. to take care of everything and everyone and because of that I constantly felt like I wasn't enough. Mm. Mm. What's the difference between Indian and American funerals. I'm just curious from your experience. I mean, from simple things like uh, American funerals, you wear black, and um, and Indian funerals, you wear white. And mm. um, there's a sometimes a bit depending. Obviously, in like more Western culture, there's it depends how much religion is tied to to the ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And mm. um, in Indian culture, religion is is a very big part of that process of the transitioning process of, around death. Um, and and I would say that's kind of the, the main thing uh, for me. Like those were the main distinctions where I was like, I, I remember I uh, called my publicist um, who is a really close friend of mine. And I was like, Emily, uh, I think Westerners wear like, uh, like black suits. I don't know where to get a suit. <laughs> Could you help me get a suit? <laughs> oh, it's so interesting. Like in, in the middle of so much loss, we got to think about mm-hmm. wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's such a funny thing. It's such a small thing. These I know logistics. I brought it up multiple times, no, but, but it's <laughs> no. But in the process of grief, there's so much to your point that your entire life changes. But then it's also like, yeah, what's what I have to put on clothes and like make that decision is actually really hard. Those small decisions, right? Oh yes, grief makes everything such a. <laughs> this is such a poor, poor thing to use, but. Everything feels life or death. It really does, yeah. because because everything holds such a newfound importance, and you want to be careful that how you're grieving does not 
impact like impact or tread on other people's grief mm. and um it's true it yeah. does really feel like life or death the smallest decision yeah the i mean i can i can imagine even down to what you say about the person on social media to you know the i'm just thinking about like when i've been grieving and when i have lost things i remember that same feeling being 20 and like trying to pick what i was going to wear and it wasn't about what I was going to wear at all. Yeah. But it was just like, you need something. You're like grabbing onto anything that could be sturdy that you possibly can. It's kind of yeah. what it feels like. You're in quicksand and you're like, clothes. Uh -uh. And then it's all about the clothes or. Yeah. You are constantly reaching for stability and it is nowhere to be found. I, I knew I created this like mental checklist of like things I wanted to, to like do and knock out. And I was like, okay, I need to do this and I need to do that. And and all of it was like meaningless, but it was just something to give me a sense of stability. Mm. Um, because for those first few weeks and for those first few months and for that first year, um, everything was, you just, you feel like you're on a ship yeah. where you're like constantly adjusting to the waves that are, that are hitting the side where you're like, okay, I'm <laughs> now, now, uh, now I got to how do I get from point A to point B as, as safely as possible while the ship is moving? Mm. I have a, um, <clears throat> pivoting it for a moment. Pivot away. Um, I'm gonna leave town for about a year and I need someone to take care of my son who's 18. Mm. Um, tell me <clears throat> real quick, cause I'm considering having you watch him. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, um, let me reframe the question. Yeah. I'm leaving town for a year. I need someone to watch my son Yes. for the next year. Yes. You're going to be the influence in his life. Yeah. What kind of man are you? Tell me something that you believe in. I'm one who tells him it's going to be fine. I believe in empathy. I believe in the universe, divine connection. Those are good things to believe in. Mm -hmm. And tell me uh, a weakness of yours. I think my biggest weakness is also my greatest strong point, but my mental health. Mm. My struggles with chronic depression and PTSD. Mm. Sorry for that. No. And yet, and, and yet I'm, I'm happy that you get to experience that because of the, the man you will be. I ask you this because... Um, you are influencing a lot of 18 year olds, 16 year olds, and, and, and older people as well. You have this platform where what you are, how you walk as a man, what you believe in, uh, people watch. Mm -hmm. And um, so while we're going through life, it's important to think of ourselves, but always being mindful of how it's impacting others. Yeah. And especially young boys who look up to you um, or our next generation and how they see things. And in that, hopefully our answer as well is um, I champion women. Mm -hmm. um, I believe in uh, um, the equality of all people. Um, and also, not only do I believe in it, but I'm gonna be proactive in my words and in my choices so that when you're watching my son for that year, when I come back, he has a better sense of those things. Yeah. Um, along with the answers that you gave, which are beautiful. And I would hope that you would share with him. I was about to say, I was like, I, 
<laughs> my mind immediately goes to the logistics of it. I was like, well, I got to go grocery shopping. I got. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, like, you got to do all that too. Yeah. Yes, sir. I was like, I got to check in with CVS if he has any mm-hmm. medications. <laughs> <laughs> but if you had to give advice to a younger version of you or or a younger man about about grief, what would be that? Like, what do you wish someone had told you at the beginning of that process? Mm. You're doing it right. You're doing it all right. Just trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spent so much time questioning my friends, being like, am, am I doing this right? This feels wrong. I, I don't know what I'm doing. What would Cameron want? What What do I want? What, mm-hmm. do his, what does his family want? What does my family want? Um, and all of this pressure led to me just constantly feeling confused. And I had to keep reminding myself that whatever I did, whether I sit there and I regret it now or I cringe at it now, whatever I might have done, it was all what I needed to do to Mm. process and to heal. And I'm grateful for those experiences. You are listening to the Man Enough podcast. We will be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. We've talked about grief, but let's talk about the friendship. Mm -hmm. So what was your friendship like with Cameron? Tell us about Cameron. Uh, Cameron was, pardon my French, but he was, he was fucking awesome, man. <laughs> he, was, he, was a, he was a great guy. Um, like I said, we, we met when we were auditioning for the same role. And when we booked it, we, just, we immediately kind of just clung on to each other. We were just going mm-hmm. through the same experiences. We were the same age. Um, and we, it was like, we were constantly comparing notes and we were constantly like trying to figure out adulthood, manhood, um, youth, celebrity, work life, all of that. Um, we had a partner Mm. and that felt, that was so comforting, um, to have. And also he just was, he was a person that was is figuring himself out but was also figured out at the same exact time he existed in this weird non-binary um where he was comfortable with like seeing where exploring to whoever he was going to be and um comfortable seeing wherever life takes him but at the same time as I was someone who was struggling with my mental health and and trying to figure out who I was and was constantly pestering myself with with questions that needed answers and had deadlines. He was the opposite. He was someone who did not worry about like needing um, about having questions. He was fine with questions lingering or not having answers, and um, that was a very comforting force. And I I was just I was just lucky to have a partner in crime, and have someone who I could go through life with um, and <laughs> tying it into the podcast, but also like navigate manhood with mm. and figuring out like, what does it mean to be a man? And what did that look like for you guys? A lot of, a lot of late night conversations. <laughs> um, we, I, I don't know how after eight years of friendship, a majority of that being spent five we well we would spend five days a week on set and then we would spend the sixth day over at each other's houses um 
we spending so many years together we would still like spend time in each other's dressing rooms just talking for hours um on our breaks or when we would uh sometimes like i remember one specific night where we went out to to a party and i had to drop him uh drop him home late at night and it's like it's almost like one in the morning and his mom comes out of the house and his mom goes boys what are you doing i saw your location and you're like just outside of the house and i was like what are they doing and cameron goes we're, we're talking about life mom i'll be right in i promise <laughs> and that's that's what i remember most about cameron too is is just all of our late night conversations and when we moved in together we like i i have so many of those of us just like sitting on the couch and being like well this is what i think and what do you think and um and piecing it like trying to piece life together. And what's something that Cameron taught you about manhood that you're going to keep with you? No one else can define the parameters of manhood other than myself. Mm. Wow, what a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. And he was someone that didn't impose his beliefs on other people and he didn't let other people's beliefs be imposed on him. And he was kind of like, this is how I want to live my life and this is how I want to enjoy it. And um, this is how I believe um, I should be as a man. And if that doesn't meet someone else's qualifications, then that's fine. But it meets mine and that's all that mm. matters. Mm. I, I think I learned vulnerability most from Cameron because mm. um, we were so open and honest with each other. We and that extended out to the rest of our friend group but we would always say there's there's no secrets in this friend group like we we told each other everything there was there was never anything embarrassing um for us to talk about it was always always all out in the open hmm. you're so blessed yeah i i have a something to challenge you on now hit me with it <laughs> You don't have to challenge all of our guests, Jamie. I'm just saying. Sometimes, I love a good challenge. I, I love know, a good challenge. I know. I'm sorry. Because um, I love what you're saying. And then there's something about it that uh, worries me. Not for you, yeah. but the concept. Um, if we are left to our own devices, we all have this higher nature and lower nature. Mm -hmm. If we are left to only um, live for myself and what I determine is a good man, Mm -hmm. then that could be muddled with a lot of lower nature stuff. Mm. And if we, and if everyone lived like that, um, it'd be chaos, right? Yeah. We'd have some people that think this is the right way to live. So we have to always operate from our higher nature for those of us that have a spiritual relationship with God or whatever it may be, that we um, always defer to that rather mm -hmm. than what I think I want. Yeah. The way that I know how to do that is to look to other people that I admire, other men, women, of course, as well, see what motivates them, see the adjustments they make, because otherwise uh, their choices individually living with that uh, would cause so much more grief, I think. So what I do think we need is men like on who are listening to this and when we have this conversation is, all right, you've been left to yourself, but now when do we put our ego aside and now do something that's greater than for myself, that's for all of humanity? And the only mm -hmm. way to do that I believe is to stay in touch with our higher nature and have something guide us. Mm -hmm. It's not about, you know, uh, imposing my beliefs on you, as you had said, you know, that was something that was sweet about Cameron, that he lived for himself. But we also have to always be mindful that yeah. we cannot trust yeah. our own intuition all the time or instincts because yeah. our instincts is also animalistic. 
Yeah. So we need to combine those things with, with spiritual guidance. So as someone and who has an 18 year old who's going to be four years your age, I'm constantly reminding him of that. Yeah, man, walk with your walk, stand in who you are and and put your ego down. Yeah. Right. And also look to other things to help guide you. Um, not to outside media, things of that nature, but other people and spiritual concepts that will help elevate you. So um, it's not that I'm challenging you. I'm actually not saying something no, different no. than what you're saying, but just for us to be mindful of that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Left to your own devices, we're kind of just running in circles. But what's important is that you get up, you walk around, you expose yourself to many different walks of lives, and you almost treat it like a buffet, um, which is a weird analogy to make. Love and go, that. like, <laughs> this is... Oh, this is what I really every every human is 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 flawed in their in their own respect. Um, but picking out like, oh, this is what I really um, respect and admire about this person. I think this is what I I want to hold on to. Yeah. Um, and this is what I'm gonna let go. Um, just as with our and the first time we're exposed to that kind of relationship is through our parents. You know. Um, our parents are human beings, but at the same time, we can't just take everything that they've given us. Otherwise, we're just like walking around in circles of the same thing that we've learned. Mm-hmm. We pick and choose what we like and we let go of what doesn't serve us. Mm. Um, and then we move on to the next phase of our life, which is usually your 20s when you're just exposed around friends and your chosen family. And then your 30s when you uh, and 40s when you um, build a family. And from that process, through those walks of life, uh, as much as you can get out there and and see different walks of life and pick and choose from that very colorful uh, buffet and and figure out what what works for you and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that's when you can sit down back in your room and you can go, okay, this is who I am as a person. This is who I am as a man. um, And this is who I am as a human. Mm -hmm. Love that. And I want to talk about seeking help, which mm. is something that you really did. You, you know, are in therapy and you're, you've already brought up mental health a lot already in our conversation. For a lot of men, that's a hard thing to do. Was it a challenge for you? Oh, 100%. It was a really big challenge for me. Um, growing up in an Indian American household, there is this, uh, there is no belief in mental health. Mm. Um, not that my parents imposed that on me, um, mm. or they were like, oh, hey, Karin, uh, good morning. Remember, mental illness isn't a real thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they weren't like that. Uh, they, it was more so, um, just subliminal messages mm-hmm. that I picked up. And, and also like, you know, I could watch like an antidepressant ad that like came on and I'd be like, oh, that's just extra sadness. Like, that's what I just, you know, grew up around. Um, and so as I got older, um, my friends held me with like the gentlest of hands and with their love and support, they were like, hey, we think it's time that you get some extra help. Oh, wow. Like you get the support. So that, and came, help that came externally. It came from your friends. Yeah, it came from my friends, oh. um, which is just such a challenging conversation to like, I applaud them for how they handled those conversations because your initial reaction is oh, fuck, I'm broken. Like, there's something wrong with me. Like, there's, like, my friends don't want to deal with me. Like, now I have to pay a shrink to deal with me. Like, that's, mm. that sucks. Um, and how they handled that conversation, I was able to go, I know, I hear you, I'm just not there yet. Mm. Um, and then at the age of 18, I, I 
started seeing therapists a little bit and then oh wait so this was before cameron passed yeah this was before cameron Mm. passed so you're just in you're in high school on the set you guys are working and was cameron one of those people yeah cameron was one of those people that Mm. supported me to to get some extra help and my my best friends i've known for a very long time anywhere from like six plus years and I started experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety at 13. Um, and at first mm-hmm. I kept pushing off getting help because I was like, oh, this is situational. Like, this What is- were some of those yeah. symptoms? Yeah. What was going on? Um, anywhere from just like feeling like there was no point in life to the other extreme, which is everything had so much importance mm. that if I, if I fucked it up, I like... I would want, like, I would literally want to kill myself. (laughs) Um, And that, and it didn't start off that way. It it was like just this, it, it progressed. It, it came in waves. And at 13, I was like, oh, this is, this is situational from the research I've done. Like I'll get through this. And then it kept persisting and persisting. And my friends were very like supportive. And then it reached a point where they were like, I, you know, this has been going on for some time. Like, do do we want to consider getting some extra help? And like I said, 18, I, I took that step. And at 19, I made the jump to move out with Cameron and Sophie because I also needed that distance from my home life mm-hmm. to really put some pieces together and, and, and figure out what I was feeling and what I was going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Ever since then, I, I've been uh, consistent with therapy because I realize that's that's what I need. And um, my uh, my my Cameron and Sophie were so supportive because I decided at one point I was like, I think I need medication, mm. and that was a really scary thing because as an actor, you selfishly go like, Will I be able to act anymore? Yeah, <laughs> like, I lose my edge. I don't want to numb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you want to numb it. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah, like you said, I don't want to numb myself. Um, and I, I took that step and medication was for me and medication, um, contributed to, to saving my life. Mm. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. I think what a lot of people don't understand is about medication, again, depend if you find the right one with the right, you know, help is that it actually helps you find yourself, not lose yourself. Like a lot of, like I had the same inclination of like, I'm just not going to have my edge. I'm not going to be as successful. I'm not going to be as fun as like weird. And I was like, oh, no, no. Like it helps you actually oh, you're just come as back weird. to yourself. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And just as thank fun. Thank you. Yeah. I'm under medicated right now. But, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm curious how they approached that conversation with you. Because a few times you said that they did it in a really helpful, productive way. And I know I've struggled with that with my friends of like, and especially guy friends of like, how do you bring that up? Yeah. So how did they do it? And what's your advice for people who are listening who, you mm-hmm. know, may want to intervene with their friends? It's a great question. Making it as honest as possible while also being as compassionate as possible mm-hmm. um, and recognizing someone's hurt and someone's pain and trying to explain, like, I'm just trying to lead you to water. I'm mm. not trying to abandon you. I'm just mm. trying to help you get to water. Mm. Um, and that's what helped a lot is because I always had the security that I, I had this deep fear in a lot of my relationships and I that everyone would leave me. So I always kept one foot out the door. 
Um, mm. And I was like, I'm like, my friends were always afraid that Okarin's going to run off to New York. He's going to do that one day. <laughs> like, he's just, um. he's, he, um, and they, I think they were always a little bit on edge about that. Um, but they would always reassure me that, like, we are not going anywhere. Mm. Like, we're not trying to abandon you. We're not trying to dump you onto someone else. We're, and you are not a burden to us. Mm. Um, you are just someone we love and we just want to see you take better care of yourself. Mm. And and from losing Cameron, the one thing I've made it a point uh, for myself to, uh, a point I've made is I'm going to do the best job that I can taking care of myself because he, Sophie, my friend Sarah, Zoe, and Nolan have spent so much time taking care of me. And mm. I was like, I'm ready to take care of myself. Um, and and I've been focused on that ever since. Wonderful. I uh, we're, So we're here in Way, Wayfair Studios. And you know, I built this company essentially making art that tackles grief and that tackles death. Because what's bigger in life? Yeah. Right? And... Um, I started doing this documentary series 10 years ago, probably around the time when you got your show, <laughs> uh, called My Last Days, where I would travel the country and I'd tell the stories of these amazing young people who were living with a chronic or terminal illness. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we have our Five Feet Apart poster right here that was inspired by my friend Claire Weinlin, who had cystic fibrosis, and that's the guitar from Clouds. Um, uh, about Zach Sobiak, who was 17 with osteosarcoma. And one of the constant themes from years and years of years of working with these young people was they kept telling me that nobody, nobody talks about death. Nobody talks about illness or sickness, especially in high school. Um, and for folks with these chronic and terminal illnesses, they often felt super alone because it made people really awkward to talk about. And now, oftentimes we, you don't experience what you experience at such a young age. You don't experience your best friend or somebody you love suddenly or tragically dying. Very few people experience chronic or terminal illnesses in high school. But the theme of it all is, is our perceived immortality. And I'm just wondering, you know, as you guys were in high school, because he suffered from seizures, right? Yeah, so uh, Cameron had epilepsy. Yeah, he had epilepsy. Did you guys have conversations about his illness, about death, about the possibility of it? Was he was he afraid of it? Were you afraid of it? I'm just curious if that was ever a part of your guys' discussions because you were so close. And I'm, I'm assuming you saw him have a seizure at one point or another, or maybe not. Yeah, I was there when he had his first seizure. Okay. Um, so I, Sophie and I were like with him uh throughout his entire journey with epilepsy and the the thing that brings me most regret is i i wish we had more conversations about it mm. um but at the same time the conversation around epilepsy on a societal level is just not one that's had properly um what do you mean it's a lot of the time it's like, hey, uh, you have one seizure. That's okay. That's kind of weird. If you have two seizures, then you're epileptic. We're going to throw some medication at your way 
and uh, yeah, that's about it. And no one, no one tells you, like, how Cameron died is the the name just really paints the picture of what it's like in the epilepsy world. Uh, he died from SUDEP, which that name means sudden, unexpected death in epilepsy. They have doctors have no idea why or how they just know that someone with epilepsy can just die suddenly for no reason. Um, and that was the the best that we could do was <laughs> we didn't want to suffocate Cameron. We didn't want to make him feel like we were constantly watching him being like, oh, you better stay on top of this or whatever. He understood the importance that he held in our lives and vice versa, the importance that we held in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, he took very good care of himself. He was on top of his medications. He That boy was drinking so much fucking coconut water. Like it was, <laughs> he was staying hydrated. Yes. Like he was taking care of himself. He was doing everything right. And those were the conversations that we had had, which was, okay, this happened the first time. That was scary. Second and third time, this is getting a little, this is getting really scary. And it was all, and you were there for each of them? Or? Several of them I was there for, um, I, or I was around um, in, uh, in the general area, but not all of them. Um, what was that first one like? It was terrifying. It was, it was um, I, I thought, I thought he was he was gonna die, because um, we didn't know what it was. I I didn't know he was he was, I I'd never seen a seizure before, um, and thankfully Cameron's parents were were there and really um, his, his mom is is a social worker so she was just a, a great comforting support. But um, you know we we took the necessary steps yeah. like his his parents took him to a doctor, make sure he got on medication. Um, did what he need to do and um in that process he learned how to take care of himself properly and make sure he did the best that he could to avoid um having another seizure mm. and unfortunately that wasn't enough and and after that first one you guys never got into it you know like um fear of death what happens when we die like never not even really thinking that that would be a th- would be an whatever happened because of kind of what you said about the way that epilepsy is handled. Yeah. It's interesting because after Cameron died, a lot of people came out of the woodworks and was just like, I can die from this. Um, which was like, which was really a, a, a scary conversation for a lot of families to have, but no, we, we didn't really, the, the main, the main part of that conversation that we focused on was I love you. I care about you. I know you love me and I know you care about me and it's important that you take care of yourself. And that's how we handled those conversations. It uh, it wasn't so much I'm I'm scared you're going to die. Um, what happens if you die? I think those those things we unfortunately avoided, um, but also reasonably avoided. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I'm going to have conversations about like my parents have conversations about death and loss with me um, because you know as they get older they're like, hey, here are things that you should know. Um, here's the, here's who to call for the life insurance policy. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. So your parents have those conversations with you. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have those conversations with me, um, which I, which I, uh, do appreciate because I'm someone, as you can tell, that really likes to, to prepare. <laughs> um, and, uh, it feels really taboo in friendships to go, 
hey, what happens if you die? Yeah. It feels like a taboo. Yeah, thing. no, for sure. I, it's just a conversation for all of us that we push so far into the future, especially as young people, because we have our whole lives. You, I guess, we're older millennials now, but you <laughs> have your whole you have your you have your whole your whole life ahead of you. And it's not something that you actively think about um, until you have to. What do you think happens when we die? Um, all I know is that energy can't be created or destroyed, just transferred. And I believe that the best way that, that I've been able to cope is that the energy that is Cameron is somewhere out there. Um, and if his consciousness does transcend, um, it reaches... I, I believe the way that I've been able to cope is I believe that that we just reach an ultimate level of empathy and we just every person becomes super transparent and we can really empathize with everyone and their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's a it's a beautiful but also kind of a sad um, experience. And, and that's what I like to think he views me as. Do you ever feel him or? have dreams about him or tons of dreams um which is that's that's emotionally exhausting because you're just like depending on the on the context of them I, I i was recently talking to this uh with a friend but for me the the challenging thing is i know the facts of the situation which is cameron has died yet he's there right in front of me um so it's it's a really confusing thing to navigate in mm. inside of a dream. And then I wake up and then I'm like, oh, well, I didn't feel like I got any sleep. I felt like I was dealing with a, with another one of my quarter life crises. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. But there's there's times where. And maybe maybe my mind is just is reaching for answers, but there's moments where I'm like. OK, he's 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 still there. Like mm. I, I just little moments where um we would uh, have lunch and we'd always get these like plastic forks and Cameron would always break his plastic fork by accident. And he would always complain. He's like, ah, oh, these damn forks. And, mm. um, it was like the day after Cameron had died and we hadn't eaten anything. My friends were like, okay, it's, we, we need to go out. Like, let's just grab some food and eat. And the, the only time this has ever happened in my entire life, my plastic fork broke. Oh, um, and I was just I like, <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, he's, he's there. He's, I, I, I know that if he has any control in the situation, he would not leave my side. Mm -hmm. Can I offer you, um, my view, my personal perspective Please, on, love that. on what happens. So, Jamie and I are Baha'is in the Baha'i faith. And what we're told is that for every physical law in the universe, there's a spiritual counterpart. Um, basically, God's like, hey, guys, it's not that complicated. <laughs> so to understand death, we're told to look at birth. And that birth and death are the same. So in birth, um, when you're conceived, you're in a womb, you have your perfect environment, you're, you're developing all the things you need to develop, your eyes and arms and legs and ears, but everything that you're developing in the womb, you don't need for the womb, right? All your eyes and arms and ears and legs, you don't need those things for the womb. You need them for where you're going next. And while you're in the womb, you're also coexisting 
in this massive, magnificent world where you're literally a floating rock in a universe that we don't know has an end. And there's a sun and a solar system and air, and you'll need your lungs to be able to breathe and your eyes to be able to see photons and all of these types of things. And you're coexisting, you're only two inches away, but you're in completely different worlds. And then one day you die of that womb and you go through a very painful process, a tunnel, if you will, <laughs> a dark tunnel where there's light on the other side. And one thing we don't think about is in the womb, we're hearing things because we're developing our auditory um, senses. We're able to hear voices and noises. We don't really know what they are. We can't process them, but we know that there's something there scientifically proven that we can hear the, uh, and understand the language of the mother at birth. And you go through this tunnel and suddenly you're met, hopefully, by all these people who've been waiting for you this whole time. People that love you, that have been nurturing and caring for you, talking to you, praying for you. And suddenly you have a use for all of the things that you were developing in the womb. You take your first breath, you can see ideally. And what we're told is that this life, this world, this earth is about developing all the things that we can't see, developing all the things that are not physical, our, our spiritual values, our um, love, compassion, empathy, sensitivity, a lot of the things you talked about today, because those are the arms and the eyes and the legs that we're going to need where we're going next, where we don't have a body. And also this world is coexisting with wherever we're going next, just like the womb was with this. We're just two inches away. So this idea of Cameron being right by your side, I prescribe to and believe we just can't see it. We don't have those eyes yet. But what we can do, I believe, is feel it in the same way that when we were babies in the womb, we could feel and hear the mother. And the, the nicest thing about in the Baha'i faith, what we're taught is that where we go next, it's an idea, a, a place that we can't comprehend because we're finite. How could we yeah. comprehend the infinite? But when we're there, we have more influence on this world and the people we love than we do when we were here. Mm. And so I just want to offer that to you because when you said you sometimes feel I'm here or the, or the, the fork broke, I think sometimes we just have to tune ourselves to be able to receive that mm -hmm. and look for it. I can tell you there's been miracles in my life and things that have happened with friends and people that I've lost that I could never explain. Jamie's got some crazy ones. Um, and I just want to offer that to you because it, to me, it feels like uh, your brother never left you. Thank you. He's right by your side. Thank you. That's, I, I really appreciate that because I've been trying to, as grief does, you search for answers. That's the first mm -hmm. thing you want. Um, and the best thing that I can do is, is treat it like that metaphorical buffet and go like, okay, what resonates with me? What doesn't? Mm -hmm. And um, let go of what doesn't serve me. Like what doesn't serve me is knowing that there's a hell <laughs> out there yeah. where, um, where I'm like, I, that, that doesn't, <laughs> don't know if that one helps. Well, we don't believe in hell just so, you, <laughs> just so that can make you feel better. Ooh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> we believe that we believe that hell is a condition that also exists right where we are. Mm. Ooh, life is suffering. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, man. So just, uh, so, so take that if you, uh, if you will, but, um, but it's, it's been really helpful for me and my process. And what's the worst that can happen if we believe in something mm -hmm. like that? If anything, yeah, if it helps you feel a little a bit better point. or if it helps me feel a little bit better, mm -hmm. like why not take that? Oh, 100%. Medication? Um, 100%. How has this experience positively affected you? 
Ooh. Um, from Cameron to everything that I've experienced um, with all the trauma that I've endured in my life, as, as every person reasonably does, um, I'm very grateful for it because it's made me into a person that I'm falling in love with. Oh, um, that's so damn sweet. I know. I try to be sweet. <laughs> I'm actually pretty cynical, which is funny. Uh, <laughs> but no, I'm I'm starting to become really happy with the person that I am, um, which is like a weird sensation because you're like, oh, I spent, I don't know, like 20 years of my life hating myself. And then uh, to pivot to, oh, I think I might like this person is a really big shift. And mm. that feels uncomfortable at times. Um, but all these experiences have, have shaped me and crafted me into a person that, yeah, I, I'm I'm starting to, to really like. Mm. So it seems like you have very deep friendships with other men. You had a very deep friendship mm. with Cameron and you've deepened your friendships with other men as well. How do you go about doing that? Because for a lot of men, that's a difficult thing. I get this question all the time yeah. Yeah. in private and in public, right? How do I build this kind of intimacy with other men? Well, first you're going to be playing chicken for, for, <laughs> for a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. That's the unfortunate thing with male friendships is, is you're just like, am I going to be the first one to be vulnerable or are you going to be the first one to be oh, vulnerable? Okay. Um, but <laughs> it's so true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think first it's spending time by yourself and figuring out what are my truths? Like what, what's, how can I, what's my path to finding my most like honest self? Um, and as you get on that road, not being able to, uh, not being afraid to share that you're on that road mm -hmm. and on that path. And unfortunately you're going to find people who are uninterested in that and yeah. who have, uh, who aren't interested in you knowing their journey and they don't want to know your journey. And guess what? That's even better. That saves you so much time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, because that person just isn't there yet. Yeah. And you, it sucks but you just pick up where you left off and you just be patient and you will find that right person. I think um, when anyone first comes to L.A., you know, their their question is always, oh, I'm like, I want to find my people. Like, it's so hard to find my people. And the the best thing I do, which is also applicable to to finding and deepening your relationships with uh, with other men, is understanding that it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of time and just like anything else in your life, you have to nurture it. Mm. Um, but first it begins with you. Mm -hmm. mm. So wise. So wise. My and parents men, would say otherwise. Uh, <laughs> They'd well, be like, well, this kid. When you're ready, we'll come back and talk about your parents. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's, it's so smart because I, I, I know personally, um, oftentimes you want to just you know, jump in yeah. and, uh, and try to rip the bandaid off, but you can't. It's like a, it's almost like I've felt paralyzed at times with other men when I'm like, Oh, I want to, I want to say something or I want to share how I'm feeling, but I just put up this facade, this, like this, this fake armor just like boop, pops yeah. on and then yeah. I can't. And then I'm just like, yeah. So like sports, and yeah. weather, <laughs> you know, it even Some happens with me and men. I feel it with my friendships. I have a lot of male friends that just give me the worst response <laughs> when I share something that's really deep, even though I've been vulnerable in the past. I'm like, uh, Wait, give, me, give me one response. An example. One yeah. example. Oh my God. It's like I'll, I'll come with, let's say, 
you know, oh, I just, you know, saw this thing my ex-boyfriend uh, said on, you know, somewhere. And it really hurt me because, it, you know, it's like, you shouldn't take that personally. You, it's like an invalid, yeah. in trying Inval to help invalidating, me, an invalidation yeah. of my feelings. And I think, again, it's, it's something that a lot of men have to learn or that I was told by a couples therapist is the number one thing she tells men who are in therapy with women, uh, heterosexual men who are in therapy and couples therapy is don't try and fix just listen, listen. Uh, and sometimes we do want you to help fix but most often we just, we just want, want people to listen, to listen. <laughs> whether they're our friend right and regardless of gender yeah. you just want someone to say like oh yeah that sucks i'm sorry that's it right yeah and but but it's so and i also understand the part of myself and men who want who like when he said that i shouldn't be looking at that because it uh -huh. comes from this like loving place where yes. we want to we want, we, want to, we want you to feel better and we don't have we, it's we don't know how to just sit mm -hmm, with it mm -hmm. and it reminds me of what, what you were saying this um kind of this chicken game i remember when i was actually when i was 20 and i was going through a really hard time i had lost like three important people in a row to me wow. and i was grieving um i remember calling one of my best friends and just because i needed to talk to somebody and i felt so alone and uh, I didn't have a, I wasn't in a relationship. I just needed, I just needed somebody. So I called him and I start talking about what I'm going through. And he goes, he was 20, 21. He goes, oh man, that must suck. <laughs> and at that point yeah. I knew I could not talk mm -hmm. to other men. That was all. That was like, I was, I was beta testing it and pff, I got my answer. Yeah. It's not safe with other men. So then yeah. it was only women. Mm. Yeah. And it took me years and years and years to fix that and it wasn't his fault he just had never experienced that trauma yep he had never experienced loss he just didn't know how to hold it yeah so he was just like trying to say the right thing mm. oh man that must suck and then i'm like yeah it does suck and then i was like i gotta go mm. and i was like what the fuck mm. yeah i um in in a, a weird way i kind of do that with like my I talk a lot about mental health and uh, my personal relationship with that because I just believe that the more vulnerable I am about my experiences, hopefully like that helps other people or they just feel more comfortable talking about that. Yeah. And um, I like if I if I see if I see another guy at a party and he's like, oh, how's, how's your day going? It's like, good. Went to therapy, like had a really good, tough <laughs> session. But like, you know, uh, yes. whatever it is. And and if he if he cringes and goes okay dude yeah i'm gonna use the bathroom then, <laughs> okay cool but if someone goes uh great like uh that's so cool i just went to therapy the other day and i had the mm -hmm. same thing really tough session like what were you guys talking about like i i know that's something that i want to invest in but not everyone's oh. gonna meet you at your like yeah. at your I wherever love you that. are mm -hmm. i love that as a conversation mm -hmm. that's how a good you? conversation like, starter no, no no i didn't really mean how you were <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, right. no no i yes. gotta go yes. abort abort mm -hmm. so I embrace vulnerability with with other mm. men in my life. That's the biggest thing that Cam left me with. I'm less afraid of of sharing that with other men because I think at first, as we're all programmed to believe that, no, you keep those things sheltered mm. and you keep those things like really close to you because if you let them close to other men, theoretically, then, you know, you're vulnerable to, to being hurt. Mm -hmm. And how I'm just, I'm less afraid of being hurt, you know, because I've already been through so much. Like what's the worst that Chad's going to fucking do? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, no offense to Chad's out there. That's the name of the episode right there. <laughs> That's amazing.
but no, I, I'm, I'm just not afraid anymore. Mm. Yeah. Tell, tell me about the, the Cameron Boyce Foundation, and because this is a huge part of your life now. Yeah, it's, it's become a really big part of my life. We're doing some really great work. The Cameron Boyce Foundation was started shortly after Cameron passed. He was doing and participating in a lot of philanthropic projects, and we thought we should pick up the work that he left off and continue it. Our, our main thing that we're championing um, is epilepsy research and finding a cure for SUDEP, uh, which is what Cameron passed from. Also focusing on things that Cameron was really passionate about, like ending gun violence, the global water crisis. That boy did a lot, so it's hard to keep up. But <laughs> It's hard. That's at 20. <laughs> yeah, at, at 20. that He was he was doing a lot that he he cared about. And, you know, arts programs. So we're, we're funding those and also keeping his dream alive while also keeping our dream alive, which is finding a cure for epilepsy. And how can people help and get involved? Spreading the word, following us, donating or buying our merch, anything. Um, a dollar goes a really long way. And, and the crazy thing is we just reached a million dollars in donations. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a really big, it's a really big milestone. And a majority of that is from like uh, mm. less than like $5 donations yeah. from people. Um, which has been like a really insane thing um, to, to see a community come together and, and champion um, causes that Cameron believed in. Mm. Mm. It's beautiful to see you keep his legacy alive. <sighs> keep him alive that way, you know, Thank his you. soul and his spirit and everything that he cared about. You're a, you're a special guy. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, let's jump into some rapid fire questions. Ooh. Welcome to this week's Man Enough Podcast Rapid Fire Questions. Do we have any audience questions today? We do. From Ron Sparkman. What is the biggest obstacle on the journey from your head to your heart? Hmm. Understanding that both of them speak two different languages and uh, just taking the time to slow things down. Because, hmm. um, you know, you, you don't go to a foreign country and immediately like, start spewing English, you, you go on Google Translate and you're like, okay, <laughs> let, me, let me look up this one word and slow things down a little bit. Mm. And you just start a dialogue, one word at a time. Mm. I love that. One of the things I love about this is we get to learn from our guests. We really do. And I love learning yeah. from someone so much younger than myself. It's, they speak two different languages. That's it. Mm. That's totally it. Mm. Uh, Jamie? was the last time you cried? The last time I cried, I feel like I've been in so much therapy. I've I've uh, exhausted my tear ducts. Um, the last time I really cried was like over, I want to say uh, like three or four months ago, and just going through life stuff and just feeling really stressed. And uh, yeah, it was, but it was good. I was just like, I, there was a part of me that was like, "Yay, I'm crying. This is healthy. Mm. Like I haven't done this in in years." <laughs> I feel the same thing. Yeah. It's like you start crying and then the part of your brain's like, yay, you're doing yes. it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's but, true. And then the actor side of you goes, wait, 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 but hold on to this. Hold on yeah. to this. What's the feeling? What's the, wait, what does this feel like? Yeah. <laughs> Save this for the work. Um, all right. You have a, uh, you got a time machine. Yes. And you can go back and spend a moment with your eight, nine, ten year old self. What do you want to say to yourself? I'm I'm sorry. I'm such a broken record. Um, I would say I'm sorry, but it's going to be fine. Mm. And now you can time travel to the future. You are 
you're a ghost at your own funeral. You're kicking it with your boy Cameron. And you guys are laughing and making jokes and you're watching all the people that you love in your life talking about you. What do you hope is said about you and the way that you move through the world as a man? I, my biggest fear in life has always been hurting people. I don't want to hurt people. Mm. And that is impossible. That is just, I'm going mm. to hurt people whether I like it or not. And all I want people to know is that I cared. Mm. Um, and I know that at times I'm not always the most present person and I try really hard to be. And I'm not always, um, I'm not always going to be the greatest friend. I'm not always going to be the greatest brother. Um, and I'm not always going to be the greatest son, but at least they know that I cared. Mm. And we've talked so much about Cameron because he was so instrumental and important in your life. But if he were able to sit here for a second in one of these chairs, what do you think he would say he's most proud of you for? Putting myself first for once. Mm. I, I think I had to make that difficult choice um, in, in the middle of 20, uh, 2020 to really prioritize myself even above my career. Mm. And, um, and I've never looked back and I've never been more stable in my entire life. And I know stable isn't usually the word that people go for. They usually go for like, I've never felt more, uh, more happy or joyful or whatever, but, but stability is, is something that I've craved mentally for a really long time. And it's finally found me. Hmm. You found it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When's the last time that you apologized? When's the last time I apologized? I had a really bad problem with apologizing when, uh, when I was younger um, and now I'm getting better about it. But I think the last time I apologized, <laughs> oh, this is, this is going to reveal how LA I am was calling my agent going, I'm sorry, but like, did I book that role or did I not? You got to <laughs> let me know. <laughs> uh, that's so LA, but yeah. <laughs> and now final question. What do you think it means to be man enough? Trust. Hmm. That's what it means. It just means trust. Trusting the universe, trusting your siblings, trusting your hmm. friends, trusting yourself. Hmm. I want to tell you, you, my brother, are man enough. And I appreciate you being here so much. No, I want to talk you. to you from the heart, my man. I appreciate you really it. are. And uh, thank you for being here. And I think it's, I just, I hope and I believe it's going to, speak to a lot of people yeah. who who maybe are feeling like mm -hmm. you've been feeling and alone and and trying to find a right way to grieve and there is no right way you're doing it just just the way you're supposed to thank you my friend we will thank be you. right back this is man enough hello and welcome back to the man enough podcast uh wow that was, oh, God, he's so sweet. Yeah, so deep and so thoughtful, like an old soul. Yeah. Right? Sweet, sweet dude right there. So much to share, and so he's already learned so much. I, I, grief 
and masculinity is just something we really, really never talk about. No. Or I wish I could hear more men talk and about. I, and it's funny, that was one of the things, and I'm sure you felt this way too after your book came out, but I finished the book and then it hit me one night, oh my God, I didn't write about grief. Mm, really? Yeah. Mm. And there's no, there's nothing about grief in man enough. And I think it's because of the pressure I was under and trying to like condense everything down. It was already way too long, but grief, I've, it's, it's so important for us men to talk about because we're not allowed to grieve. Mm -hmm. There's no space for us to grieve. Mm -hmm. We're just supposed to be okay because yeah. we're impenetrable and yeah. impermeable. Mm -hmm. What do you think, man? I was happy to see a young brother um, be all right with being vulnerable and, um, you know, really just have listeners. Um, uh, this is actually what I was thinking um, for a good part of it. There was a, a good portion of it there where it was just the two of you talking. Liz yeah. and I just, um, you know, um, stepped back and there was, you know, a good portion. And then you just saw him connect with you. And it was really sweet to see. And what I was thinking also was that mental health, mental illness is not, um, oftentimes we just think about the person on the street, waving their hands and doing, talking to themselves and whatever that looks like. So then when we use the word mental health, we think, oh, I can't be that because that means I'm that person that's out on the street. Yeah. And in fact, mental health is just um, um, so much, so much more broad than that. Well, it's like physical health. It's like physical health, it right? It requires maintenance. So uh, so for him to talk about it and just normalize it yeah. and not make it so taboo um, for those that listen, all of us, to just know that there's nothing wrong with you because you have mm -hmm. um, to take care of yourself. Yeah. Um, so that was sweet for him to do. Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, Liz, you know the data and it's, it's in your book, but f to me, these conversations, this specific one today, this is the kind of conversation that can save a life. Yeah. And I loved the part where he talked about how he was approached by his friends because I, yeah. I really, even again, as a person who's 10 years older than him, more than 10 years older than him, I still struggle with that. Like like how to bring these things up to a friend without them feeling like they're a burden, without them feeling like it's a criticism, right? Yeah. Because for a lot of people who have mental health issues, um, rejection sensitivity is is a thing i learned is uh, happens a lot with people even who have adhd which is mm -hmm. like something you might not have like connected um because we don't really talk about some of the least the less obvious symptoms of of adhd but i think a lot of different other mental health uh challenges but rejection sensitivity just means that you feel rejected very easily yeah. and that yeah any kind of feedback or criticism is is very painful and mm -hmm. so it is good if someone is in a difficult mental headspace to really make sure that it's you're being uh, you know very explicit yeah. about the fact that you're you know you're doing this because you care about them and you want to be closer to them yeah i just love that and i think that you know if we can if we can help one person out there who is struggling or suffering or who knows, having suicidal thoughts or feeling like they're not enough for the world or for anything. If, if you are that person listening to this, please consider seeking help and know that it doesn't make you broken, it makes you human mm -hmm. and that you are enough. If you like this conversation, please like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts or you can go to where? Manenough.com slash podcast. Mm. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Jamie Heath. And this is Man Enough.
Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Malhotra Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Kerry Rathode from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kahea Kiwaha is our producer. Brandy Cole is head of marketing. Susie Landers O'Connell is our assistant editor. And Josh Schneider is our lead editor. Thanks for listening.